I felt like it was too late. Like, the problem is that I had already done this Bitcoin magazine for two years and there was just so much information about like my writing style and all of these things. Ah. I mean, like I could try dodging that by just by like writing all of my posts in French and like hoping <laughs> that they're not, they won't catch me that way, but yeah. Hmm. What's up everybody? Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on what time you're listening to this. You are actually listening to Africa's number one podcast when it comes to technology, business, obviously blockchain and life. This is the Grey Ave podcast. For those of you who are just listening to the show for the first time, it's important to tell you guys that, hey, we are on Apple Podcasts, we're on iTunes, we're on Spotify. We're pretty much everywhere, so uh, I recommend that you go on all of those platforms, whatever is convenient for you, and subscribe. And on this episode, I have a very, very, very special guest. In my opinion, is one of the smartest people um, in the world right now alive, and his name is Vitalik Buterin. Vitalik created Ethereum, which is the second largest cryptocurrency, obviously second to Bitcoin. It right now has 28 billion, over $28 billion in market cap and the majority of cryptocurrencies on CoinMarketCap actually, or that exists in the world, are built on the Ethereum platform. So I was lucky to, be, uh, to meet Vitalik. Uh, this was at a, a hackathon, uh, the ETH Cape Town hackathon, which was in Cape Town in April. And actually thanks to Linum Labs, and ETH Global, obviously. Uh, these are the guys that made it happen for this uh, interview to happen. So I was glad it happened and it's also on video so you guys can actually watch the interview I had with Vitalik on YouTube, on my YouTube channel, Hardcore Crypto. And speaking of things that we discussed on this interview, we started from uh, you know how he ended up building this platform and uh, what, uh, what are some of the best decentralized applications or dApps he has come across, whether built on the Ethereum platform itself or uh, on other blockchains. What was the initial idea and how it has evolved to this point and his thoughts on ICOs. Uh, and I asked questions like, does he think design, design actually aesthetically, is undervalued in the blockchain space? Um, and he had a lot of interesting to say about that. We discussed about 51% uh, attacks, proof of work, proof of stake, and threats to blockchain. Can government just wake up and shut it down? Is that possible? So he had a lot of things to say about that and we discussed privacy, among other interesting things. Why did he not end up going anonymous like Satoshi, the founder of Bitcoin did? So this was definitely a highlight for me. I had no idea that this was going to happen because it was not planned. But there it is, guys. I hope you enjoy this. Again, thanks to Devon from Linum Labs, uh, Megan and everyone else involved uh, who were part of the organizing team of the ETH Cape Town Hackathon. It was fantastic, world class. I just hope we see many of those as time goes and as the blockchain expands and become more adopted uh, all over the world. So yeah, you guys enjoy the conversation. Some of you can see it on YouTube, Hardcore Crypto. Thank you for listening. I'll see you at the end of the episode. 
and uh, there's a lot to talk about. One of those is Ethereum 2.0 that yes. has been a, a stir in the Ethereum community for a long time. Mm -hmm. What are the things that you're personally looking forward to and you know, um, that are exciting for the space? I, so for me, the big things are, first of all, just Ethereum 2.0 itself yeah. um, and getting proof of stake and especially getting sharding out there. Just a blockchain that's scalable in that way is not really something that's been done before. And mm -hmm. I think it's going to be a really interesting experiment. Um, also, some of the layer two work that's been done recently, Plasma and in channels, like I see them as being a different kind of scalability solution and also something that um, could be really useful for people that don't want to kind of make their applications completely decentralized immediately, but, but they can just move them from a server to a plasma chain and then just get some, you know, some trust guarantees fairly quickly. Um, I'm excited about also just seeing what applications people are starting to come up with. Like it seems like it's finally gotten to the point where people are making things that that, that people are finding useful. Mm -hmm. So like we've been seeing the decentralized finance stuff, but then even outside of that, you know, there's like smartphones that are integrating Ethereum support. There's all of these like projects trying to use it for insurance, projects trying to use it for other things, and it seems like they're starting to really get users now. And you know, one of the things that um, most people have been talking about in terms of uh, this is relative to, re related to Bitcoin mm -hmm. is that if you look at proof of work, yes. right? Uh, we have a an issue with fifty one percent attack, which yeah. is a threat to a proof of work mm -hmm. algorithm. But if you're looking at proof of stake, what are the threats to that kind of uh, uh, consensus algorithm? Sure. So you can do 51% attacks against proof of stake as well. Mm -hmm. um, but the expectation is that it'll be more expensive. Um, and because you'll just need more coins, but also because like, with a 51% attack, if you succeed, then you, you still keep your mining hardware. Mm -hmm. But with a 51% attack on proof of stake, like, it's very likely that you'll just lose the coins that you used in attack. Right, right. Yeah. And, and also it's just easier to recover from. Yeah. Like in proof so like in proof of work for example, if some attacker actually did get more like mining hardware than the rest of the network, mm -hmm. well they attack once, then the attack stops. But then they can attack again, they can attack a third time. And there's not really anything you can do without just changing the algorithm. Whereas with proof of stake, like because attacks are expensive, you can just recover more quickly. And you know, for for a lot of people in this space who actually sometimes say that oh, Ethereum is centralized, yes. well, what are your what are your responses to those kind of sentiments? It's interesting how like people trying to criticize Ethereum say it's too centralized, but then I hear people in the Ethereum community basically saying it's too decentralized now. Yeah. Like, I, do you agree that it, it is more decentralized now? It's definitely much more decentralized than it was even two years ago. Yeah. And I think it's a, a very kind of healthy thing is it, it means that you know, there is less risk that if something wrong happens to one team, then that'll break the, the entire project. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, there are also definitely kind of downsides that come with it, though 
opinions. It feels like the downsides are more like, like there's more smoke than fire there. So like people make a lot, like people have been arguing a lot recently, but at the same time, like there's just people who are doing work are still getting work done. Yeah, yeah. And what I like about you is like you you don't try to get involved too much with the politics. Yeah. And just get to the um to the work, uh, but. Um, in terms of adoption of cryptocurrencies, I mean, I'm sorry, of blockchain, do you think we're going to end up becoming a plug-in to the existing systems, or are we actually going to create a new system entirely? Realistically, some of both, but I think uh, the applications where blockchains are really going to succeed are probably not, mostly not going to be applications that already exist. They're right. mostly going to be new things that people build, and that could be new things that people build, like in the blockchain community, so for kind of to make pure blockchain projects. But it could, like, but it also means like there's many other you know, movements, people doing new things, even out, just outside of the blockchain space itself. Mm. And there's plenty of people building just plenty of different kinds of new things because they care about them for completely different reasons, right? Like there's people building identity systems for refugees, there's people trying to uh, come up with innovative like, local governance solutions, there's this big long list of things. And I think, especially if we can make blockchain scalable and usable enough, then those new things are going to just plug into blockchains more because, well, it's there and you can use it. Okay, so I'm going to reverse in time a little bit. Sure. Just to, for most people say in Africa here, they have heard of what Bitcoin is. They know they use it. But uh, Ethereum, how do you, you know, you're one of the co-founders, how do you explain it? Sure. Um, so I think like, Ethereum, I mean, first of all, it, it offers all of the things that Bitcoin does. There is a currency. You can use it as a currency in, in, in all the same ways. But it also uh, offers this extra feature, which is the programmability. Mm -hmm. And... Programmability is um, useful for many things. One of them is this idea of smart contracts, which is that you can have computer programs that be, that encode the logic of like applications that just directly control money, mm -hmm. right? So, like even some of these you know, decentralized insurance projects that people are coming up with, like there's some logic that enforces the rules of the system, then whoever the insurer is puts money in, and you have this guarantee that it just gets paid out automatically, yes. which is nice. Uh, and there's also the opportunity to use the blockchain for things that don't have to do with currency itself. Yeah. So like one of the biggest use cases I talk about is a key revocation. So like basically if you have an account that you know, you're authenticating with some cryptographic key, and then you want the ability to change the keys because you're worried it got hacked or something else happens, then you can just put that record on the blockchain, and then if you get that operation in first before the key actually gets hacked, then you're good, right? And, and when we talk about revocations, like we, that's an operation that you need blockchains for because you need a place to check that whether, like, if you're authenticating, you need to check that a revocation has not happened. So you would have to like check the chain and, and like, check that this kind of event has not happened yet. And that's something the blockchains are good for. All right. So in terms of when you started the, uh, when you started Ethereum, is this what you were thinking at the time? Or so, how much of what exists now was exactly what you, your initial thoughts and how much of it 
is it? How just been a kind of an evolution of it? So interestingly enough, the very, very earliest versions of Ethereum yeah. were basically just about trying to make more general purpose uh, financial contracts. Mm -hmm. So like, right before Ethereum, I was working in this project called MasterCoin that was focusing on kind of financial derivatives, insurance, like crowdfunding, all these use cases a lot. Yeah. And I, like, what I was trying to do at first was basically take the MasterCoin idea and kind of generalize it more. So instead of saying, here are the 10 different things you can do, you would say, here is a programming language and whatever you can write in that programming language, you can do it. And then from there, the um, ideas did branch out a lot, right? Like even ENS, like using Ethereum for a yeah. domain name system. That's, I love ENS. Yeah, and uh, that was more and of other people figuring out that you can do that. Yeah. And then uh, there was all of this enterprise adoption that started happening. There were all of these other applications and most of them, like, I did not come up with those ideas myself. I like like I, ICOs, is, is it something that you anticipated at all? That you know, at one point this yeah. could happen? Yeah, the, like the Ethereum um, crowd sale itself was kind of an ICO, and then there were yeah. there, there were sales before that, like there was the Mastercoin sale, which was really the first. So they were definitely a thing happening at the time, but I definitely did not expect that, like creating your own cryptocurrency and trying to like, raise funding for it in whatever way to just become a thing to the extent that it did. Yeah, and. You never thought, I suppose, that you know it could be this big. Where every yeah, day no. and everywhere you go, people are asking me about Ethereum. Does it ever get exhausting for you? Sometimes it does. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and he asked you about your favorite memes yesterday. I think you didn't have any. No. I mean, what are my favorite memes? I don't know. Yeah. Like, uh, or do you do you like it when people make memes out of you, of your photographs? It depends what kind. Right. Like, there's definitely better ones, and then there's ones that just like completely don't understand me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. <laughs> uh, how, how much, in what way do you think people don't understand you in this space? Hmm. I mean, like, the people that just make memes of myself and put little Lamborghinis beside them, that just like... <laughs> <laughs> like, anyone who actually knows me would just see that as so ridiculous. Well, what are you into, really, if you're not into Lamborghinis, as most people would think? No, I, I like walking, I like reading, I like um, just thinking about different things. You know, I'm fairly kind of... Like, and... Um, like you, when you travel to a city like Cape Town, what are the things that you're more likely to go into and look into? Because hmm. this city is beautiful. It is, yeah. I mean, I actually climbed up the mountain this morning. Which one? Lion's Head, Table Mountain? Table. Okay. Yeah, and it's really good. A hike or it took a cable car? No, hike. Wow, up and down. Uh, oh, no, hike off cable car. Oh, okay, yeah, that, that's yeah, no, no, no. Um, And your, or the type of books that you're into? And what what one would recommend when it comes to systems, like systems design? Yeah, um, I don't know. Like I've actually started reading books less lately than I used to because I found that even like there's very high quality blogs out there, mm -hmm. and often enough, like when you read a book, it feels like there's a lot. There's some like really good information, but then there's also kind of filler that's there because you have to have two hundred pages. Yes, and. Like they're you know, my favorite blog. I mean, Slate Star Codex is one of probably one of the big ones. Hmm. Um, it's really informs my philosophical thinking in a lot of ways. There's yeah. a few others, and 
like the articles are shorter. It's it's oh yeah, well you know two thousand or ten thousand words, but yeah. like if you if you add all of them up, it's basically a book. So if you then you know you started as uh, you started out as a programmer doing fun stuff, having fun, but now you're kind of evolving into uh, you're evolving into a leader. How has this been for you as a transition to like, you know, you're a developer and now you have to become a leader, learn about different philosophies and you're developing um, incentive models and different things that will affect the world in, in one way or another? Yeah, I mean, like a lot of that is, is something I've had doing for a very long time. Like even before I started Ethereum, I was writing Bitcoin Magazine for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. um, it, you know, Starting Ethereum is definitely going to have changed my life in a lot of really unexpected ways. Yeah. Probably the biggest thing that I kind of was very naive about before and I just had to learn quickly about was just kind of the realities of working in teams and, deal and like dealing with people and like dealing with conflict between people. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you've, you've heard stories, but there's definitely you know, Things that happened inside of Ethereum that yeah. I was sort of not prepared for at the beginning. Yes, yes. And I'm considering that you were young as well at the time, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or do you think that's not a factor? I am. Because if you look, say, three mm -hmm. years or just five years ago, I mean, mm -hmm. how much of yourself do you think have changed in terms of thinking? Definitely quite a lot. Mm. Mm -hmm. Um. So, lastly. What are your what, what's your position when it comes to Bitcoin SV and you know what's happening in the space? Uh, you know B, BSV being delisted from Binance and the noise that uh, uh, that uh, Craig Wright is creating. Yeah, I mean, like obviously BSV is a com is a complete scam, but like the, the delisting <laughs> from Binance that I mean that was interesting. Like there were. And there's arguments in favor of it, but then there's also arguments that like this is an exchange that's like wielding a lot of centralized power. Yeah. But like realistically, like Bin like Binance as an exchange has a lot of power and it's wielding it in a lot of ways. Yeah. And that's like they've asked for big listing fees. They've they influence which coins win and lose by just choosing like what trading pairs they have. And so like it's weird to kind of criticize like that one decision without looking at all their others yes so i think like the more long-term thing is i mean like i'm sh I'm sure you've heard my end of comment last year about wanting centralized exchanges to burn in hell as much as possible yeah. like i've like i do really want decentralized exchanges to succeed and at least kind of offer enough of a level of service that coins can, like tokens can exist and do well like even yeah, yeah, like regardless of what centralized exchanges do. So that is a, that is a very good point. I would need you to explain at what level do you consider an exchange decentralized? What it means mm -hmm. to you to be a decentralized exchange? Yeah. And also, have you had any inputs from the government kind of trying sure. to talk to you in terms of how they can go about this? Sure. So there's different levels of decentralization, right? So the kind of lowest level you can get to is an exchange being non-custodial. Yes. So what that means is that it's still a centralized exchange, but it uses smart contracts in some way, possibly Plasma or something similar, to have the property that even if the exchange gets hacked or the exchange becomes malicious, you can still get your money out. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I think is valuable by itself because if you look at uh, cryptocurrency exchanges, 
and thefts from cryptocurrency exchanges. Or, like they're big. Like Mt. Gox lost 500 million. Some uh, uh, exchanges in Korea lost a couple hundred million over the last year. And most of those losses are cryptocurrency, right? Because yeah. if you steal fiat, like it's more regulated, it's just easier to get it back and it's easier to catch people. Yeah. But then, so with, crypt with cryptocurrency, like on the one hand, it's more kind of slippery because it's less regulated in this way. But on the other hand, because it's cryptographic, you have the ability to build these tools so you don't need to trust people to uh, do, hold it for you. And so, like with custodial exchanges, I do think that you can really reduce the risk of these sort of really big thefts. And I, I hope that we can at least kind of get to a world where if you build an exchange, you just build it that way by default because other, you're just scared of uh, like you're, you're other people like wanting your head cut off if you get hacked. Yeah. Like if, you, if you get to the point where the default is that you want to make things trustless, then that's, uh, that would be a big step. But then, so that's the first level, right? The second level is if you want an exchange where you don't rely on a central party even for like um, even to, to to kind of exist and be online, mm -hmm. right? So then there is sort of different levels of that. So one of them is this kind of relayer approach that I think like Zero X and some others are taking, yeah. where you have it's still a lot of trustless. You have relayers, but then you try to it's kind of federated. You try to make an open market of them, and then the approach that's like way at the top is kind of completely a sort of cent not central party dependent and especially like the real the, the highest of the peak is if the whole thing is just a smart contract right so the reason i really like uniswap and i keep kind of pumping uniswap everywhere i go is because like first of all it really is completely decentralized in that way it just is a contract yeah. and like you can just go and use it and it's there and nothing can take it away but also like despite that it manages to be extremely easy to use like it's probably like 10 to 100 times easier to use than other exchanges because you just go to the, go to a website log in with metamask yeah. click and you're done and right. that like so like i'm really happy that we have that within at least the ethereum blockchain itself but i think now the challenge is that there's more blockchains popping up and so it'd be nice if we could have of high quality, more decentralized exchanges that can handle multiple blockchains. Yeah. And I think we're not quite there yet, but we're getting there. So for example, I was really impressed by one thing um, Kyber did, which is they managed to make a apparently completely trustless bridge between Ethereum and EOS. And like it's completely trustless. So they have like a light client of EOS inside of Ethereum and a light client of, of Ethereum inside of EOS. Yeah. And like they talk to each other. So I thought that was just like really amazing it's a lot of technical skill in their team and that's like you actually can just build that and once it's there anyone can use it um did you uh, did you ever thought of uh, before i get to my second part of the question but did sure. you ever thought of um becoming an anonymous like satoshi at the beginning with ethereum at all um i felt like it was too late like the problem is that I had already done this Bitcoin magazine for two years and there was just so much information about like, my writing style and all of these things. Ah. I mean, like I could try dodging that by just by like writing all of my posts in French and like hoping <laughs> that <laughs> they're not, they won't catch me that way. But yeah. Hmm. 
And so, yeah, the second part of the question was, um, do you get approached by governments in one way or another yes. to try for them to understand how to go about it? And yeah. what do you think they're at or their understanding of this is? And also, a lot of people like to ask, uh, can this be stopped by gov governments, say we're banning this, now it's over? Yeah. I've definitely talked to quite a few governments, mm -hmm. and the, the, the ones in Asia actually seem to be the ones that kind of most actively reach out and want to talk to me. Yeah. Um, and they're definitely interested in the technology. I mean, they're definitely also concerned about the money laundering things like mm -hmm. exchange thefts and other things. And there's definitely ways that we can uh, help solve problems that they care about, but mm -hmm. even just coming up with uh, like trust minimized exchanges and like better alternatives to the kind of extremely centralized versions of ICOs that we have today I think yeah. and like I've talked to them about things and they're definitely excited to like, see imp like improvements if they can be actually made to work um, there's been interest in this concept of security token offerings recently. Yeah. So, and like, there's this conference in Taiwan a while back, and they're apparently planning to release some regulation around this. I think in June, which is really interesting. And like, the thing that interests me there is that, in, like, first of all, it's just more bridges between kind of the blockchain world and the real world. Yeah. And it's done in this way that. In, uh, integrates blockchain layers and legal layers so that you have the like you can basically have things happen on a blockchain that actually just directly become legally binding yeah. and you can then think about using this to even like control like just run entire organizations and companies which i think like that part's really interesting and then just using blockchains to give people more access to different kinds of assets is also interesting can this be banned by governments and this be yeah. sober? Um, we ban it. Because that's what a lot of people say. Mostly yeah. who don't really, who are not really in this space, they'll be like, ah, oh, you know what? Mm -hmm. I don't really like that space or even mm -hmm. just to invest in it because I feel like government would just come out one day and say, it's over, guys. Mm -hmm. okay. I think it would definitely be very difficult to ban completely. Uh, completely. Mm -hmm. Like, there's plenty of things that, like, Plenty of governments would like to see shut down even more than cryptocurrency. Like even just the Tor network is one of them. And yet, like yeah. it's I mean it's like it's been apparently successfully blocked in some countries, but it's generally still running. Um, but there are like if they want to crack down, like they, like you don't want to go to the other extreme and say there's nothing they can do to control it at all because if they want to crack down, right? The simplest thing that they can do is they could just ban all of the exchanges, yeah. and then. Now, like, it's, um, you turn it into this thing where people that really wants to get into it can still get into it, but it yeah. just becomes 10 times harder to get, have anything get mass market adoption. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. And so I think, like, it's definitely, a, we definitely do need to have try your best to kind of pre prevent that kind of outcome from taking place yeah. and in... Like that does also mean like talking to governments and listening to their concerns and seeing if there's some way that we can help solve them. Yeah. And, like, and if they do try to go after it harder, like I think, and banning exchanges is like the first uh, and is just the first and simplest thing that they can do. And it's definitely 
still an untested assumption that the crypto space can maintain kind of more than a very small user base under those conditions. Yes. I mean, if it can, then we'll see it, but it's, it's still like, it's more untested than people realize. So myself being, being based in Africa, uh-huh. one of the things that I, uh, I'm really excited that, that blockchain or say cryptocurrency has changed directly to me is um, peer-to-peer finance has changed a lot of things because I'm on the ground, I do kind of a retail, uh, Bitcoin transactions, and you know it has changed people in a great way because I know people who can work now on the internet and get paid with cryptocurrencies very easily. They can buy things online very easy, and you know remittances is kind of a, it's not a big issue for people that are really into they and they know about Bitcoin. And here the use case is not about buy and hold kind of thing. People buy Bitcoin to actually use it. Right. You see, yeah. uh, from uh, and then there's a lot of potential that could come out of uh, smart contracts, things like Ethereum. Uh, they allowed me personally and other people, you know, to invest into into global markets, which that was unheard of before. I wonder, from your point of view, what has been uh, one of the most fulfilling things that you have seen that Ethereum has been able to do that you're happy with? Yeah, and I think making international commerce easier is a really big one and like it's even something that that benefits the ethereum foundation directly right because we have contractors in like more than 10 countries and we we, actually we do really benefit from the ability to like just pay people in ethers or or in some cases even die instead of uh, having to just figure out banking like details of every single like uh place in person that we that we want to try to deal with like, yeah. it's just if you if, even just something like getting reimbursed for a flight like if you just compare the, the banking process versus a uh, cryptocurrency it's just so much easier yeah. but then that's um also just um see like, it's definitely good to that, that we're seeing these kind of applications that go beyond like just like payments that are that people are starting to come up with so insurance is one of those that I'm um, interested in because it's um, like it's definitely a market that's like very inefficient in a lot of ways and it's like if you look at the history of insurance right like 200 years ago it was basically like clubs of people that just got together and and agreed to like pay each other's expenses if one of their ships got flooded and that from from there we've moved to this more uh, centralized model, and it would be interesting to see applications based on blockchains that can try to kind of try different kinds of models out. Mm-hmm. And there are people that are trying. So, like for example, there's some there's like Hurricane Guard there that's doing like hurricane natural disaster insurance in Puerto Rico. There's the crop insurance and. In, Sri Lanka and a couple of others. Yeah. So it's like definitely really good to see people trying, but though I'm still like, also one wants to. Like, it seems like we're getting to the point where these things can have like gets to like, really start benefiting a, a lot of people, but it's it, it still feels like it's maybe just a, a bit away from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, if you had to. Uh, on all the travels you've been to, what is the most hilarious thing you've ever done? Most hilarious thing I've ever done? Um, 
I mean, the most recent one that comes to mind is taking a picture beside that like, banner from Justin's son. The, with Ethereum uh, master, master nodes. Yes. Is it 30 Ethereum or 32 Ethereum? There's kind of a... I don't, yeah, I mean, right now the goal is 32. 32. Okay, that is fair because I remember a couple of years ago it used to, we used to hear about 1,500 or so. Yes. Okay. Yeah, so what happens there is we switched, like, the approach we did before was to try to do things on the uh, on the existing Ethereum one chain, mm -hmm. and that had a lot of overhead and there were a lot of optimizations that we couldn't use. Yeah. So, like, the biggest one was just BLS aggregation, and then the overhead is just about, like, Merkle trees and storage and all of those things. Mm -hmm. And now we're building this more kind of custom and optimized chain for the purpose, and so the load of handling validators is just much smaller than it was before. So yeah, and we it, like from the the numbers that we've seen with test nets, right? Like the max, the theoretical maximum number of validators that you, you can that you you can support is about four million, because like we're predicting that you know, the all of this will get added when the if supply is somewhere between around like one hundred and ten or one hundred and twenty million divided by thirty two, you have about a bit, a bit less than four million. So with four million validators. I think a couple of uh, weeks ago the result was that you can validate an average block in one and a half seconds and the worst possible case block in 12 seconds. Mm -hmm. Now which is still like not the best because the block time is six seconds but they're just like that's the worst possible case where everything bad is happening at the same time yeah. and they're just like a few small optimizations away from it working. So it's like I'm definitely really looking forward to just the larger scale test nets being tried. Yeah. And I'm also just looking forward to test nets where more just regular people can try out participating in the staking experience. Yes. So, like, we want staking to be fairly and widely distributed for lots of people to have the opportunity to participate, and we'll get to see like exactly kind of how easy it is to run a to run a node and stay on the network. Yeah, I would, I would, I would appreciate if you really have a very simple. Because I, I run nodes, I love master nodes, but the problem is the the setup is very difficult for the average guy. Yeah. And I get so many guys that are maybe they've been scammed in some mining operations or right. something, you know, and then they really want to get into mm -hmm. uh, master nodes, but they the setup is just too difficult. Right. Yep. So if it would just be a matter of you know load up your tokens, yep. one, like two, three, and click, it's done. up. Yeah, that yeah, would be that's awesome. What we're going for. Yeah. So what are, uh, what else would you like to talk about? Lastly. One big thing that I kind of care about that I want more people to focus on is like wallet security. Yeah. Because like the simplest kind of wallet where you just have one key and if you lose your key or if your key gets stolen, you're screwed. Like that's just so terrible for people. Yeah. Um, and honestly, even hardware wallets are like not really the best. Nope. Like I think if you want something secure enough to store people large amounts of assets and then especially later on the people's identities then you need something that's like multi-factor in some way you need something that's uh, kind of got more layers of security behind it how do you secure yourself from say in a worse occasion in, in the worst occasion uh you have to die and then what happens to your cryptocurrency? Because to me, I've asked this question to David Auburn, uh, Roger Veer, a couple of other guys, and nobody really has given me a solid answer of what yeah, um, the custodial side of things. For me, I basically, like, what I did was I, um, on my cold wallet laptop, calculated two numbers that add up to my private key, and I just gave those two numbers to two different friends. 
add, oh, you give those two numbers to different friends. Yes. So, but th that is a kind of a, a very personal approach, which is great. But then for someone who don't have those circumstances, shouldn't be there like a, a smart contract that looks into these things and, you know, it, well, or if you create a wallet, I would think yeah. that every wallet should have a solution to this baked in, in one way or another. Yeah. Um, so the thing with the smart contract right, is that it still has to have something as input. And so, like, the question of, like, is, is this you isn't really something that's kind of mathematically definable. Yeah. It's something, like, you can try to represent that through something you have or some, or some number that you know. But if you want something more secure than that, then, you know, you would either have to rely on kind of partial centralization so yeah. one example of this would be like you have a hardware wallet, you know a password, and that's two factors. But then a third factor might be some uh, custodian vault company. And if you lose one of your factors, you can talk to them, like do KYC with them, and then they help you recover it. But then like if they end up not being trustworthy, then the two things that you have together could get you your wallet back. Mm -hmm. So uh, things like that are good approaches. Um, in I'm generally a fan of this uh, kind of if you have some number of trusted friends then set it up so that kind of some so, like the majority of them can kind of recover your key back like it doesn't need to be two it can even be like five out of ten or something yes. and like like in even in places where trusted institutions don't exist like people do have relationships that they that, that they can trust a lot of the time mm -hmm. and so like, trying to take advantage of that I think is from a probability point of view, though, even two friends are really not enough because oh, totally, what happens yeah. if the fatal happens with the two, including yourself, the, the wallet holder? Yeah. That is then yeah, no, everything. For, uh, like something you know, where you have like at least five is uh, would be ideal. Let's just I suppose. then, yeah, and then like like for me personally, I'm also afraid of like technical risk, and so like. My cold wallet laptop is using Pi Ethereum, which is code I wrote myself. So, okay. <laughs> um, like, obviously, most people can't do that, but it's still something like we do need to put more effort into just writing code that makes it easier for people to do this and yeah. uh, making it um, easier to um, just like. Set up, set up your security in this way, and then you'd have your like the code itself needs to be audited and probably formally verified a couple of times. So, like we just needs to put the effort into making this working. So the other reason I'm interested in this is that I think if we have solutions that work well enough for holding cryptocurrency, yeah, which is a market where like there's very big incentives to be secure and there's also very big incentives to try to break security, then that's something that could be and used in other places as well. Yeah. So like you could even imagine an Ethereum account being used to like sign into internet services. Mm -hmm. And then you could have an identity where, where you don't need your identity to be controlled by like Google or Facebook or Twitter. Right. Oh yeah, that is that is good. Yeah. That is good. And uh, in terms of uh, the future of Ethereum, you think it's still gonna be involved? And what do you think about uh, issues like what happened with the Litecoin Foundation where the founder just you know, sold off and, and exited a little bit? I mean, I'm definitely not planning to sell everything off and exit anytime soon. Okay. I'm, uh, 
But at the same time, right, like the Ethereum community should not need to kind of trust <laughs> trust me for Ethereum to continue existing. Yeah. And I think one of the good news over the last year is that there's been like like people say I've stepped back. I don't think I have. Like it's more been all of these other people that have stepped up. Right, like on the research team, like Danny, Justin, Xiaowei, and more people have done a really good job on the Ethereum 2.0 spec. Like Alexei has been doing a really good job on the kind of leading the ETH 1.x efforts. The ETH 2.0 developer companies, they're just really good teams all by them, and great companies all by themselves. So I think like it's not just about me, right? Like if you're, uh, like, I guess I've sat on Reddit recently, like if you're making a bet on the Ethereum ecosystem, it's and these kind of silent armies that you're betting on, and they're definitely bigger than it might seem on Right. Uh, so, if you had to build a DApp right now, not on Ethereum, uh -huh. what blockchain would you build it on? Hmm. Um, I mean, Ethereum Classic, because it's the most similar to Ethereum. <laughs> and without Ethereum Classic? Okay. Um, hmm. Depends what kind of DApp. So, like, if I was just doing payments, then I would probably, I mean, I like Zcash the most, because they've been doing really good work on privacy. Yeah. Um, for a just smart contract chain, I mean, none of the ones that exist currently really satisfy me. I mean, like, a, I think, like, Dfinity is interesting, and there's other interesting smart contract chains that are coming out soon. And from the philosophical point of view, what do you think, uh, you know, the issue of, say, privacy, in the blockchain space, or just the, the ability to allow people to trade without intermediaries being perceived as a bad thing? Yeah, um, yeah I mean, that, and there's definitely... What's your take with that? Just like having kind of a sure an unregulated market. There's definitely people that, and I, a lot of people that say that. I think my answer would be that, you know, first of all, blockchain technology itself just also provides kind of different ways of solving those same problems, right? So like even like the example with exchange hacks, so like on the one hand, the coins are more celebrity, but on the other, because you can just steal them anonymously, but on the other hand, you have more tools to create structures that make it more difficult for people to steal them. Yes. And for like, in like more privacy preserving solutions, like do solve problems that people really care about. like. There's been this big movement against like, centralized data collection recently with you know, things like the GDPR and people thinking about privacy legislation in other places. So there's definitely this uh, very positive side to privacy and kind of quote self-sovereignty. And I also think that like if you zoom out and look at the bigger world, right, there's like the world is not kind of becoming invisible, right? Like there's more, uh, there's more information just visible through the existing internet than there even uh, was 20 years ago. There's the amount of things that you can see with all the surveillance cameras that are around. There's yeah. just like so much, like, that was not even imaginable like you know, 20 years ago. And especially with AI being able to just like spot where, where someone is, like, a big parts of just where people are going around every day. Yeah. So I think, um, like, I, I almost hope inter like, privacy on, on the internet and on blockchains can be a counterbalance to that. Yes, that is a very good point. Cool, man. Thank you so Thank much. You. I do appreciate it. Hello once again, and that was the end of our conversation. And just before you go, just want to 
communicate a few things with you uh, quickly. If you have uh, enjoyed any of the podcasts or this specific podcast episode, I would appreciate it if you share it with your friends and family through your social media, Twitter, Facebook, etc., etc., as well as write me a five star review on iTunes or Apple Podcast app. That would be fantastic. It helps me flourish and sustain this podcast as well. Uh, we also on other platforms like SoundCloud, uh, Stitcher Radio, um, and all other major podcast platforms. So whichever way you're listening to it, I would appreciate it if you leave me a review. You can also subscribe to the Grey Podcast through my website, greyjabesi.com, G-R-E-Y-J-A-B-E-S-I.com. There you also find some of the blogs that I'm writing sometimes and you get notified as soon as the new episode has been published until next time enjoy and be productive thank you